Chapter 14 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 14 I came across him the next afternoon, sitting on a stone bench in the Luxembourg Gardens. His hat was slouched forward over his eyes. His hand supported his chin, so that his long, straggling beard protruded in a curious Egyptian horizontality. His ill-laced boots, innocent as usual of blacking, for he would not allow Blanquette to touch them, were stuck out ostentatiously, and to the peril of the near passers-by. He had never, during our acquaintance, manifested any sense of the dandified. On our travels he had worn the casual, unnoticeable dress of the peasant, save when he had masqueraded in the pearl-buttoned velveteens. In London a swaggering air of Bagadaccio had set off his bohemian guard, but never had the demoralised disreputability of Parago struck me until I saw him in the Luxembourg Gardens. Everything else wore a startlingly fresh appearance after the heavy rains. The gravel walk had the prim neatness of a Peter de Hoog garden path. The white balustrades and flights of steps around the great circle, the statuary and the fountains in the middle lake, flashed pure. The enormous white caps of nurses, their gay silk streamers fluttering behind them, the white-clad children, the light summer dresses of women, the patches of white newspaper held by other loungers on the seats, a dazzling bit of cirrocumulus scudding across the clear Paris sky, the pale dome of the Pantheon rising to the east, the background of the Luxembourg itself, in which one was only conscious of the highlights on the long, bold cornices. All set the key of the picture and gave it symphonic value. The eye rejected everything but the whites and the pearl greys, subordinating all other tones to its impression of fantastic purity. And there, like an ink blot splashed on the picture, sat Parago. The very foulest odd volume of Montesquieu's Esprit de Loire, which could be picked up on the keys, lay unopened on his knee. Not until Narcisse, who was sleeping at his feet, jumped up and barked a welcome around me, did Parago notice my approach. He held out his hand, and the fingernails seemed longer and dirtier than ever. He drew me down to the seat beside him. "'You were asleep when I ran in this morning, Master,' said I apologetically, for it was the first time I had seen him that day. "'Since then I have been thinking, my little Astico. It is a vain occupation for a May afternoon, and it makes your head ache. I should be much better employed carting manure for Madame Dubosc. We earned two francs, do you remember?' "'I remember that my back ached terribly afterwards,' said I, laughing. "'Ah, but the ease and comfort in your soul!' Perhaps there's nothing much the matter with yours yet, is there? I think it's all right, I answered. Something must be wrong with mine, he remarked meditatively, because at a crisis in my life I haven't had an inspiration. It is sluggish. I want a soul pill. This time it was I who had an inspiration, one of terrifying audacity. Master, perhaps absinthe isn't good for it, said I, all in a breath. Infant Solomon! replied Parago ironically. Where have you gathered such a store of wisdom? Have you a scrap of paper in your pocket? Uh, yes, master, said I, producing a sketchbook and preparing to tear out a leaf. He stopped my hand. Leave it in, all the better. As I'm sure you don't remember the passage from Cicero's De Natura Deorum, which I quoted to you some time ago, since you are unacquainted with the Latin tongue, I will dictate it to you, and you can learn it by heart and say it like Pater or an Ave morning and evening. I wrote down at his dictation 
the passage concerning the impossibility of judging between the false and the true. And that is how I was able to set it down in its proper place in a previous chapter. Do you know why I have made you do this? Yes, master, said I, for I knew that he referred to the sale of Joanna for ten thousand pounds. Circumstance flattens a man out sometimes, said he, like a ribbon, as if he had been carefully ironed by a hot steam roller. I suppose a flattened man can't have an inspiration. I am my own tombstone, and you can chalk across me, Hic jacet qui olim paragotus fuit. His tone was so dejected that I felt a sinking at my heart, a scratchiness in my nose, and a wateriness in my eyes. I suffered the pangs of suppressed sympathy. What could a boy of nineteen say or do in order to restore rotundity to a flattened hero? Years ago, he continued after a pause, I found the world a lie, and I started off to chase the wild goose of truth. I captured nothing but a taste for alcohol which brought me eventually beneath the steamroller. Were it not the silliest legend invented by man, I should say to you, beware of the steamroller. But if a man's sober, he can see the thing himself. If he isn't, he can't read the warning. I can only tell you to be unalcoholic, and you'll be happy. You see, my little son, Astico, to what depths I've descended, in that I can be the apostle of the platitudinous. He leaned forward, chin on knuckles, and his beard again stuck out horizontally. Happy people passed us by. For many, the work of the day was already over, and they had the lingering magic of the sunshine for their own. A young, blue-bloused workman and a girl hanging on his arm brushed close by our seat. See nous all des enfants et de beaux enfants, she cried. I hope they will, said Parago, looking at them wistfully. Then, after a pause, has the Comtesse de Vernier any children? No, master, said I, in a tone of conviction. It took me later that I had spoken from blank ignorance. But at the moment the question seemed preposterous. In many ways I had still the unreasoning instincts of a child. Because I had never contemplated my dear Lady Joanna in the light of a mother, I unhesitatingly proclaimed her childless. As a matter of fact, I was right. Arago, satisfied with my reply, watched the endless stream of cheerful folk. Once he quoted to himself, The golden foot of May is on the flowers, and on the heads of all but me. Suddenly he sat back and seized by the arm. Astico, you are a man now, and you must see things with the eyes of a man. I have loved you like my son. If you should turn away thinking evil things of me like someone else, it would break my heart. Neither she nor you ought to have seen that accursed paper. You and Blanquette and the dog are all I have in the world to care for, and I want you all to think well of me. Then the tears did spring into my eyes for my beloved master's appeal went home to that which was truest and best in me. I stammered out something, I know not what, but it came from my heart. It pleased him. He jumped to his feet in his old, impetuous way. Bravo, petit estacot de mon coeur! The nightmare is over, and we can enjoy the sunshine again. We will drag Blanquette from the Rue des Saladiers, which does not lay itself out for jollity, and we will dine at a reckless restaurant. Blanquette shall eat the snails which she adores, and I shall eat pig's feet, and you an underdone beefsteak to nourish your little body. And we shall all eat with our dinner le pain béni de la gaieté. He strode off, eager as usual to put his idea into immediate execution. 
He talked all the way to the Rue de Saladier. Poor Blanquette, he'd been neglecting her. A girl of her age needed some amusement. We would go to the Théâtre, the Porte Saint-Martin, like a good bourgeois, and see a melodrama so the Blanquette could weep. They're playing Les Aventureurs de Paris. I hear they rip each other up on the stage and everybody is reeking with blood, good, honest red blood, carried in bladders under their costumes, my son. You turn up when you can with your snub little superior artistic nose, but Blanquette will be in paradise. Blanquette was in the slip of a kitchen and a flurried temper when we entered. But master, you said you would not be home for dinner. There's nothing in the house, only this which I was cooking for myself. And she dived her fork into the pot and brought up on the prongs a diminutive piece of beef. And now you and Astico demand dinner, as if dinners came out of the pot of their own accord. Ah, men, they're always like that. I put my arm round her waist. We are all dining out together, Ponquette, but if you don't want to come, you shall stay at home. And without dinner, said Parigo, taking the fork from her hand and throwing the meat to Narcisse. Ah, mais non, cried Blanquette, whose sense of economy was outraged. But when Narcisse sprang on the beef and, finding it too hot, lay growling at it until it should cool, she broke out laughing. After all, it would have been very tough, she admitted. Then why in the sacred name of shoe leather were you going to eat it? asked Parigo. Food is to be eaten, not thrown away, master, she replied sententiously. We took the omnibus, and crossed the river, and went up the Grande Boulevard, an unusual excursion for Parigo, who kept obstinately to the Boulevard Saint-Michel and the poorer streets of the Cotier, through fear, I believe, of meeting friends of former days. A restaurant outside the Porte Saint-Martin provided a succulent meal. The place was crowded. Two young soldiers sat at our table, and listened awe-stricken to Parigo's conversation, and were prodigiously polite to Blanquette, who, they discovered, was from Normandy, like themselves. When they asked, after the frank manner of their kind, which of us had the honour to be the lover of Mademoiselle, and she cried with scarlet face, But neither, monsieur! We all shouted together and laughed and became the best friends in the world. Happy country of fraternity! The little soldiers, they were dragoons and wore helmets too big for them and long horsehair plumes, accompanied us with clanking sabres to the gallery of the theatre, and, at Parago's invitation, sat one on each side of Blanquette who, what with the unaccustomed bloodshed of the spectacle and the gallantry of her neighbours, passed an evening of delirious happiness. In those days I had an aesthetic soul above the Enventreur de Paris, and I made fun of it to Parigo, whose thoughts were far away. When I perceived this, I kept my withering sarcasm to myself, and realised that a flattened man cannot be blown like a bladder into permanent rotundity, even by the faith and affection of a little art student. But I marvelled all the more at his gaiety during the intervals, when we all went outside to the Throng Boulevard and drank box on the terrace of the café, and I learned how great a factor in the continued existence of humanity is the will to laugh, which I think the German philosopher has omitted from his system. I mention this incident to show how Parago defied the effects of the steamroller and became outwardly himself again. He did not visit the Café Delphine that night, but went soberly home with Blanquette, and, I believe, read himself to sleep with his tattered old volume of Montesquieu. The following evening, however, found him in his usual seat under the lee of Madame Boin's counter, arguing on art, literature and philosophy, consuming a vast quantity of ill-assorted alcohols.
and then his life resumed its normal course. It was about this time that Madame Boin, seeing in Parago an attractive adjunct to her establishment, and with a Frenchwoman's business instinct, desiring to make it permanent, paralysed him by an offer of marriage. Madame, said he, as soon as he had recovered, if I accepted the great honour which you propose, you would doubtless require me to abandon certain personal habits which are dear to me, and also to trim my hair and beard and cut my fingernails, of whose fantastic length I am inordinately proud. I think I should ask you to cut your nails, said Madame Bois, reflectively. Then, Madame, said Parago, it would be impossible. Shorn of these adornments, I should lose the power of conversation, and I should be a helpless and useless Samson in your hands. I don't see what long nails have to do with talking, argued Madame Bois. They give one the necessary thirst, replied Parago. My son, said he, when relating to me this adventure, do not cultivate a habit of affability towards widows of the lower middle classes. There was once a murderer's widow of Prague. I know, said I. How? There was an old stocking. I forgot, said he, and his laughing face darkened, and I saw that he fell to thinking of Joanna. Although much of my leisure was absorbed by the companionship of my beloved master and Blanquette, I yet had an individual life of my own. I made dozens of acquaintances and one or two friends. I had not a care in the world. Bissa, the great man attached to the life school in Jeannot's atelier, proclaimed me one of the best of my year, and sent my heart leaping sky-high. I worked early and late. I also played the fool as, worse luck, only boyhood can with my fellows arm in arm through the streets by shouted imbecile songs. I went to all kinds of reprehensible places, to the Bal de Cotier, for instance, where we danced with simple-minded damsels who thought choucroute garni a generous supper and a bottle of vin cachette as setting the seal of all that was most distinguished upon the host. For the first five francs that I made by selling a drawing, I treated Fourchette, the little model I kissed on the stairs, to a trip to Saint-Cloud. Five francs went prodigiously far in those days. They had to, as some of us were desperately poor and could afford but one meal a day. Fortunate youth that I was, whenever money ran short, instead of borrowing or starving, I had only to climb to Blanquette and open my mouth like a young bird, and she filled it with nice fat things. Poor sandaled Cazalet of the yellow hair, on the other hand, lived sometimes for a week on dry bread and water. It was partly his own fault for had he chosen to make saleable drawings, he too might have had five francs wherewith to take Fourchette to Saint-Cloud. Pretty little Pierrette in frills and pointed caps are more attractive to the cheap purchaser than ugly souls writhing in torment, and really they are quite as artistic. We quarrelled fiercely over this one day, and he challenged me to a duel. I replied that I had no money to buy pistols. Neither had he, he retorted, but I could borrow a sabre. He himself had one. His father had been an officer, whereupon the studio bawled in gleeful unison, Voici le sabre, le sabre de mon père, and dragged us in tumult to the café opposite, where we swore eternal friendship over Grog Américain. From this, I do not mean you to infer that I was a devil of a fellow, the mention of whose name spread a hush over godly families. God, what? I did little harm. I only ate what Murga calls the blessed bread of gaiety, the food of youth. Remember, too, it was the first time in my life that I had companions of my own age. Indeed, 
So nearly had I modelled myself on Parago, the ever young, that my comrades laughed at my old-fashioned ideas, and I found myself hopelessly behind the times. Youth hops an inch sideways and thinks it has leaped a mile ahead. All is vanity, even youth. Tis a pleasant vanity, though, on which the wise smile with regretful indulgence, and therein lay the wisdom of Parago. Ah, confounded little cock-sparrow, I haven't seen you for a week, he said one morning, shaking me by the shoulders till my teeth chattered. What about the other little sparrow you neglected me for on Sunday? Is she at least good-looking, a model? And she is a good girl and supports her widowed mother and ten brothers and sisters, I suppose? And she calls herself Fourchette? Narcisse, the lady of Monsieur Asticot's affections, has the singular name of Fourchette. Whereupon Narcisse uncurled himself from slumber and planted himself on his hindquarters in front of me and grinned at me with lolling tongue. But she is quite a different kind of girl from all the other models, I cried eagerly. What does she pose for? Well, of course, you know how it is, I stammered, reddening. Arago laughed and quoted something in Latin about an ingenuous boy. Would she be a fit companion for Blanquette and Narcisse and myself? Having deep convictions as to the essential virtues of Fourchette, I swore that she could not disgrace so respectable a company. We will all picnic together in the woods of Fontainebleau on Sunday, said he. We picnicked. Fourchette had no shynesses. She found Parago peculiarly diverting, and though I enjoyed the day prodigiously, I realised afterwards that I had spent most of it in the company of Blanquette. My son, said he, there never was a model so like all the other models that have posed for the well, of course you know how it is, since the world began. A week later, when I found my particular friend Ewing, whom, as a tongue-tied Englishman, I had relieved of many embarrassments, and for whom I had secured an easel, branding myself in twenty places with his name, and for whom I had engineered a good position next to mine in the life school, when I saw Ewing hugging Fanchette on the stairs, on the very landing sacred to my embraces, I knew that Parago was right, and that Fourchette was just as fickle, naughty little model like the others. But if Parago had not taken her measure before my eyes at Fontainebleau, and made a figured drawing, so to speak, of her heart and soul, showing their exiguous dimensions, I might have cast myself beneath the wheels of an omnibus like the pig Nepomuchine, or black the eye of Ewing, who was smaller than myself. As it was, I put my hands in my trousers' pockets, and surveyed the abashed couple in Parago's best manner. "'Amuse yourselves well, my children,' I laughed in French, and turned away heart whole. This is an instance of the wisdom of Parago. He smiled on the vanity of my youth, and personally conducted me to the barrenness whither it led. In this particular case, the result was more positive still. Ewing, in admiration of my magnanimity at the time, and a fortnight later of my profound knowledge of women, for he in his turn witnessed the alien osculations of Fanchette, cultivated my friendship to the extent of urging me to spend some of the summer recess at his father's country vicarage in Somerset. "'But you'll have to get some other togs,' said he, eyeing my attire dubiously. "'If you come like that to church on Sunday, my governor will forget and want to baptise you. He was once a missionary, you know.' When I mentioned the invitation, Parago insisted on acceptance. The Latin quarter confers an exuberance of tone which conflicts with the reposeful ideal of manners required in the beau monde 
which I destined you to grace when I took you from the maternal soapsuds. You will find an English parsonage exerts a repressive influence. But for heaven's sake, don't fall in love with Ewing's eldest sister, who, I am sure, is addicted to piety and good works. She will try to make a good work of you, and thus all my labour will have been in vain. In his heart, however, I believe he was immensely proud at having trained me to meet gentlefolk on more or less equal terms. Ewing's invitation was a tribute to himself. To fit me for church on Sunday and other functions of civilization, he took Ewing, as counsellor, and myself to a tailor's and plunged enthusiastically into the details of my outfit. I can see him now, shaggy and shabby, fingering stuffs with the anxious solicitude of a woman at a draper's counter. That's a nice country suiting. It expresses its purpose, suggests the right gaiety of mood. What says Arbiter Elegantorium? Don't you think it might make the cart horses shy? says Ewing, and Parago drops reluctantly the thunder and lightning check that has seized his unaccustomed fancy. My wardrobe included a dress suit. At Parago's bidding, I donned it when it arrived, and on my way to him transfixed the Rue des Saladiers with awe and wonder. Upstairs, Parago twirled me slowly round as if I were a mannequin on a pivot, and called Blanquette to admire, and uttered strange oaths in the dozen languages of which he was master. Was I not beautiful? Blanquette admitted that I was. All that was most beautiful, without a doubt. I resembled the stylish people who went to expensive funerals. In fact, she added with a sigh, I was too beautiful. She saw her brother Astico transfigured into the resplendent gentleman beyond her sphere, and sighed womanlike at my apotheosis. She could no longer walk by my side, bareheaded in the streets. The dress suit was a symbol of change detested by woman. She gave the matter, however, her practical attention. He ought to have patent leather shoes, she observed. That's true, said Parago, pulling his beard reflectively. Ewing should have mentioned it. But I have noticed a singular lack of universality in the sons of English clergymen. And now, my son, said he on the eve of my departure, I too have the nostalgia of green fields and the smell of hay and manure and the fresh earth after rain. I have at last an inspiration. As this confounded ankle will not let me walk, I shall hire a donkey and let me take him whither he will. Arcis shall accompany me. And Blanquette, will she trudge beside the donkey? I have arranged for Blanquette to go into village Tioria at the farm of La Haye. With Monsieur and Madame Dubosc? Your logical faculty does you credit, my son. They are most excellent people, although they could not tell me how many towers the cathedral of Chartres possessed. You will remember an excursion we made on Sunday, and I lectured learnedly on the archaeology of the fabric. My learning impressed them less than my skill in curing a pig, according to a Dalmatian recipe. They will board and lodge Blanquette for ten francs a week, and she will be as happy as Marie Antoinette while haymaking at the Petit Trianon. She will occupy herself with geese and turkeys, while I shall be riding my donkey. Master, said I, I only have one fear. You will adopt that donkey, and bring it to live in the Rue de Saladier. Arago laughed, drained his glass of absinthe, and ordered another. End of chapter 14